Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about the link between HIV and cancer with Drs. Robert Dubrow and Amy Justice. Dr. Dubrow is Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Justice is Professor of Medicine and of Public Health and Section Chief of General Internal Medicine for the VA Connecticut Healthcare System. Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So let's start uh, by talking a little bit about why this is an issue at all. I, I mean, we've heard a lot in, in the 80s, especially about HIV, but now it seems that we're talking more about other diseases in a population who, oh, by the way, is living with HIV. Um, do you want to tell us the larger context? Sure. Uh, The good news is that we have therapy that is very effective at suppressing the HIV virus so that people are no longer rapidly progressing to death from HIV, which has been a wonderful thing, I can say, as a physician to have watched over my career. However, that means that with almost every year, people with HIV in this country are aging by a year. So a disease that was traditionally something that we saw in young adults to middle-aged adults is rapidly becoming a condition we see in middle-aged and older adults, many of whom have been living with the virus now for decades. And that has many implications in terms of multimorbidity, not only ha- not only cancers, but other conditions as well associated with aging that people with HIV appear to be at greater risk for, including cardiovascular disease, for example. Uh, they often have hepatitis C co-infection as well, which means that their liver may be compromised and they may progress to conditions that we'll probably talk about later. Uh, And that means that they also have multiple conditions and multiple medications or polypharmacy. So in many ways, many people who are aging with HIV say they feel much older than their stated age because of all these other things going on. And that's something that we as a society need to understand how to manage to optimize the outcomes for those individuals, and to not forget about their other issues. So it's not so much that, oh, by the way, they have HIV. HIV does still influence what's happening for them, not nearly as dramatically as in the 80s, thank God. But it's still something that we have to be very cognizant of and pay attention to. And it's certainly extremely important to get everyone's virus suppressed so that they have an undetectable viral load, and that needs to happen right away. But maybe we can talk a little bit as well about the fact that it's great news that people with HIV are living longer, but do they have an increased risk of developing cancer over the general population who are also getting older? Or is it that we're simply talking about cancer in this population because now they are living longer to uh, to get cancer? That's a great question. So let's go back to the history of HIV. Um, the, back in the beginning, the way HIV came to light uh, was through seeing both what we call opportunistic infections, uh, unexplained, 
um, but also a certain type of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma, um, which is very rare in the general population, uh, but it turned out was very common in HIV-infected uh, people. Um, so ultimately, as, as, as HIV began to be understood, uh, the CDC identified three what were called AIDS-defining cancers. So one was Kaposi's sarcoma, second was non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and the third, which was added later actually, was cervical cancer. Um, and those were considered AIDS-defining. So if someone, if a person was HIV-infected and has one of those cancers, then they, by definition, they have AIDS. Um, after 1996 or so, uh, when this powerful antiretroviral therapy treatments be, became available, uh, the situation with cancer started changing. So before 1996, really the majority of cancers seen in HIV-infected persons were the AIDS-defining cancers um, at much higher levels than in the general population. You know, we're talking about relative rates of for Kaposi's sarcoma, for example, of 1,000 or more. Mm -hmm. um, for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, in the order of 20 to 30-fold higher. Um, but the situation shifted after, with um, antiretroviral therapy, um, the rates of the AIDS-defining cancers dramatically decreased, um, although they remain uh, still substantially higher than in the general population. Um, but what started being uncovered was actually elevated rates of other types of cancers, which were called non-AIDS-defining cancers. And let me tell you what some of the main ones are. Um, so... First, we have uh, human papillomavirus-associated cancers, so with cervical cancer is one of those. Um, but in addition, we have anal cancer, in which there's about a 30-fold elevated risk. Um, Hodgkin lymphoma, about a 10-fold risk, increased risk. Uh, inter other, sorry, Hodgkin lymphoma is not um, HPV-related. Some of those are related to Epstein-Barr virus. Um, the other HPV-related cancers are a portion of oral cavity and pharynx cancers, which are elevated, um, as well as um, other genital cancers like penis cancer and vulva and vaginal cancer. Those are all ele elevated. Um, okay, so then we have um, getting to Epstein-Barr virus-related cancers. In addition to Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, a certain portion of non-Hodgkin's lymphomas are related to Epstein-Barr virus, and as we've already said, those are elevated. Um, then finally, we have the hepatitis C virus and hepatitis B virus, which cause, which are major causes of liver cancer, and liver cancer incidence rates are also elevated around three to five fold. So there's a theme here um, that it's the viral-related cancers that seem to be ones that are highly elevated in HIV-infected persons. Um, there's one exception that I should mention, which because it's very important, and that's lung cancer. Uh, which is about two to three-fold elevated among HIV-infected persons. And that is partly due to the fact that there's a high prevalence of smoking um, in this population. But um, some of the studies that we have, uh, and others have done have found that there's an independent effect of HIV infection as well. And that's not well understood. The reason for that is not yet well understood because, as far as we know, um, lung cancer is not a virus-related cancer. So 
Why is it that people with HIV are more prone to viral-related cancers? What's the mechanism behind that? Well, like multimorbidity, it's not one mechanism but several. Part of the reason people contract HIV virus or some of the risk factors for HIV virus are also associated with risk factors for cancer. So substance use, uh, risky sexual behaviors also put you at risk for not only co-infection with some of the other viruses that Dr. DeBrow was talking about, but also can increase your risk of cancer because of underlying inflammation, because of other injury that is caused by those substances. Alcohol is notorious for uh, causing progression of liver disease, for example, and cirrhosis, and liver cirrhosis is strongly associated with the risk of liver cancer, as an example. We know the story with smoking and lung cancer. one, one of the things that I think is intriguing about thinking about HIV, I'm a general internist, I'm not an oncologist, but I'm very interested in this because I think that HIV can offer us insights into the etiology of these conditions associated with aging for those without HIV as well, that it shows a different angle on what is happening with these conditions. So Rob has written a lot about inflammation and its association with cancer and some of the reviews that we've written together, and that's certainly an important piece, the chronic inflammation of the virus. There are some people who speculate that there may be direct effects of viral proteins that also cause an acceleration of cancer. Um, There's also a question, quite honestly, of whether or not folks with HIV are less likely to get their cancers diagnosed in a timely fashion, Um, and that's something we're going to begin to try to study more generally. Rob, would you like to? Yeah, I think there's one other factor that we should mention. Uh, So um, the HIV virus attacks cells called CD4 cells, CD4T lymphocytes, to be more specific, um, which are critical cells in the immune system. Um, And one of the Uh, parameters that's closely monitored in people with HIV is the CD4 count. Um, So roughly speaking, a CD4 count of greater than 500 is considered to be good. Um, Once you get below 200, that's actually considered AIDS-defining, so that's bad. Um, And we've done uh, a fair amount of work looking at the relationship between CD4 count and um, cancer incidence among HIV-infected persons. And For many of these viral-associated cancer types, uh, we do find an inverse relationship. So the lower the CD4 count, the higher the incidence of of these cancers. Um, So that's another important mechanism. So it's, it's behaviors, yes. But even after you adjust for behaviors, it's also immune function as measured by CD4. And even after you adjust for immune function, it's also viral burden. Uh, Rob and I co-mentored an individual who just finished her PhD thesis who looked at the viral burden and whether or not that was an independent predictor of these cancers, and it was. So it's it's all of the above, not any one. So I guess it can make sense when, when the layperson is kind of thinking about um, what is the etiology, how does this all work, that perhaps you can't mount an immune response against a virus, and so then the virus, uh, whether it's HPV or other, uh, can predispose to, uh, to various cancers. It's interesting that viral load uh, also is a correlative factor, and whether that's just related to how bad the disease is. Um, Any speculation on why that is? Well, again, if in fact there are direct effects of viral proteins, viral load would make sense 
separate from its effect on the immune system. So when you say the effect of viral protein, what do you mean? Well, in terms of how the, what mechanism would the proteins have for cause? Well, proteins can fr- frequently mimic other proteins and have effects that aren't, quote, intended. Um, and that could include suppressing or, or uh, accentuating certain activities in terms of the cell that might lead to greater reproductivity with less careful sensor, you know, the sorts of things that lead to cancer more generally. Hmm. Um, that's not well understood, and the research on that is only beginning. But I think it's an intriguing possibility, given, given this strong association not only with HIV virus, but with co-infection with other viruses as well. I think that's intriguing. Also, if I could expand on that a little bit. So the viral load is, um, is kind of a rough, rough proxy for inflammation. Um, yes. And paradoxically, even though there's immune deficiency, you see a paradoxical, as Amy was already talking about, um, chronic inflammation. Um, and that's due to the fact that because of the, first of all, you have the HIV infection, which is related to inflammation itself, but also all of, you have, because of the immune deficiency, we have other infections, a lot of other infections that pop up, um, cytomegalovirus, just as an example, um, that causes kind of chronic uh, systemic inflammation. And again, inflammation is as well known to be related to um, cancer incidence. So I think that's another uh, mechanism. There's another interesting piece to the inflammation story, which is that immediately after viral infection, uh, people's lymphatic system along their GI tract is largely destroyed. The structure of the lymphatics around the GI tract are destroyed. Those are not really recreated, even in people who have a very good response to therapy. That means that the sentinel activities of that lymphatic system to prevent toxins from crossing the GI tract and getting into the bloodstream is reduced. Those toxins hit the liver. The liver cannot manage as many of them. So that also feeds into this chronic inflammatory process, which may well stimulate many of these conditions. Well, we're going to pick up on that conversation, but first, we need to take a medical minute break. Uh, So please stay tuned to to learn more information about HIV and cancer with my guests, Dr. Dubrow and Justice. There are over 13 million cancer survivors in the United States and over 100,000 here in Connecticut. Completing treatment is an exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. Following treatment, cancer survivors can face several long-term side effects of cancer, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources for cancer survivors are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers to help keep cancer survivors focused on healthy living. The Survivorship Clinic at Yale Cancer Center focuses on providing guidance and direction to empower survivors to maximize their health, quality of life, and longevity. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Dr. Robert Dubrow and Dr. Amy Justice. We're talking about the relationship between HIV and cancer. And before the break, we spent a lot of time talking about why people with HIV may be at higher risk of developing cancers, um, mainly viral-related cancers, but really a whole lot of other cancers as well. People with HIV are living longer, um, but also have a number of risk factors that increase their risk of developing other cancers. So I want to come back to this idea of how can we do better for HIV-infected populations in terms of preventing and treating cancers. And Amy, I want to start with you because you made a very important point that I don't think we adequately discussed before the break, which was access to care um, and whether patients with HIV feel welcome in uh, environments and have appropriate access to care, because without that access, it's really difficult to have any real impact in terms of prevention and treatment. Well, there are a number of things that you need to think about when you're talking about access. So if you're talking about access for HIV treatment, uh, people in the United States have generally good access for HIV treatment, uh, with a couple, with a few exceptions. There are, people can get antiretroviral therapy fairly readily. Um, so that's very important. If you don't treat HIV, people aren't going to live long enough to have to worry about their cancers, quite frankly. But once they get access for their antiretroviral therapy, you need to think about access for general health care management, because many of these clinics have been very focused on treating HIV alone, and they've done a great job of doing that. But they're, they're staffed by people who are extremely focused on HIV and may not appreciate all the other issues that come with aging. And there are many different models for how that might be addressed. The passage of the Affordable Care Act may very much help this issue because it now means that they can pay for some of those treatments. Previously, that was a big issue because the funding mechanism for paying for HIV treatment did not cover payment for other methods. I have the benefit of working in the VA system where people could get treatment easily for these other conditions. But until recently, that was not necessarily true outside the VA. So I'm very glad for that development. Nevertheless, the coordination is going to be challenging between infectious disease doctors who tend to do HIV treatment and the whole group of physicians that are needed and other providers that are needed to care for cancer, appropriate screening, and the other conditions we were talking about. And of course, disparities do develop uh, along the lines that you might expect, people who have insurance may be more readily able to get that kind of care. People who understand how to use the health care system may be better able to use, to, to use the system appropriately to get the care they need. So coordination of care is going to be very, very important. Yeah. And speaking of stigma, I, I mean, we've we've had people on this show before who have talked about LGBT issues, yes. uh, which certainly uh, remain an issue and something that I think we need to keep top of mind in terms of making sure that our healthcare systems really do focus on the entire population and not just those um, that uh, are uh, uh, straight. Absolutely. So I'd like to get now to the issue of prevention. And Robert, before the break, you talked about um, many of the behaviors uh, that predispose both to HIV as well as to other cancers, smoking, alcohol, etc. Should patients who are HIV infected 
um, take particular caution to reduce those risks? Uh, yes. Um, let me backtrack and talk. give a general overview of the way I see cancer prevention in this population. So I think there are three important aspects. So one is early and sustained antiretroviral treatment and because, as I talked about, the lower the CD4 count goes, the higher the risk for cancer. So if, you, if people start being treated early when their CD4 counts are still relatively high, um, then that should be good in, with regard to cancer. Um, the second pillar of prevention would be re- what you were just referring to, reduction in the prevalence of cancer risk factors. And I'll get back to that in a second. Um, and then I think the third pillar um, is certain aspects of cancer screening. Okay. So um, let me just expand slight, a, a bit on each of those. Um, so first, um, the early and sustained um, antiretroviral therapy. So that's ac- in spite of the access, um, this is still an issue um, because HIV infection until um, you know, the later stages and AIDS is pretty much asymptomatic. So people could be walking around with HIV infection for years not knowing it if they don't get tested. And so um, there's been a big push by the CDC to try to um, expand testing um, because we know now that uh, we could do something very positive for people with HIV, which is to start them on antiretroviral therapy. Um, It's estimated that about uh, 20% of people people who are HIV infected in the United States do not know that they're infected. Hmm. So that's important. Okay, with regard to reduction in risk factors, um, so I mentioned uh, the prevalence of smoking is about 50% uh, in HIV infected compared to about 20% in the general adult population. So that's a hugely um, elevated prevalence of smoking. Um, that would warrant... Uh, really that that be on every HIV physician's mind um, in terms of, uh, you know, rec- recommending smoking cessation, you know, actually um, doing smoking cessation therapy, which could be a combination of behavioral and pharmacologic uh, approaches. Um, so that should be, you know, just kind of automatic. Um, smoking not only causes cancer, as you know, it causes a lot of other uh, morbidities. Um, same with alcohol. You know, we know that there's higher prevalence of alcohol consumption. Alcohol causes um, oral cavity and pharynx cancers, esophageal cancers, other types of cancers. So, um, you know, conscious um, interventions to try to um, control alcohol consumption is also important. If, um, I can, if I can yeah, just jump sure. in there, we've done a lot of work on alcohol, and there's a lot of evidence to show that for the same unit exposure to alcohol, people with HIV are, are much more susceptible to its effects. So it takes fewer numbers of drinks to begin to feel intoxicated. It takes fewer alcohol exposures to have associations with mortality and morbidity. And likely the same will be true for these cancers, the cirrhotic events and, lung, and liver cancer that we talked about before. So, And the other thing is that we've shown that any amount of alcohol interferes with adherence to antiretroviral therapy. Hmm. If you think about it, so you come home at night, whammy. you take a drink, you might be a little less likely to remember to take your meds that night. So even if it's not directly physiologically harmful, it gets in the way of the most important thing, which is taking your antiretrovirals. Yeah. So if I could just get back then. Um, so you had mentioned vaccination. Mm-hmm. So vaccina- there's a vaccine against hepatitis B virus, which causes um, 
liver cancer. Um, so that is routinely recommended for, especially for HIV-infected persons. Um, there's also a vaccine against um, human papillomavirus, and um, that's a little more complicated because uh, typically we want to be vaccinated before we've been exposed to the virus. So usually once someone's reached the point where they're HIV-infected, many of those people have also already been exposed to human papillomavirus infection. Um, however, um, there are some encouraging, this still needs more research, but there are some encouraging studies that indicated that perhaps the vaccine could be a benefit in this population, even if they have been previously exposed um, to the virus. Um, and then there's, um, now let's turn to, to uh, treatment of um, hepatitis C virus infection, which I think I'll let Amy talk about. Well, I think this is very important. Uh, in some populations, almost half the people with HIV have hepatitis C co-infection. And we know that hepatitis C co-infection progresses more rapidly in people who are HIV co-infected, even after you treat them, although treatment for HIV slows the progression of hepatitis C. So that's the good thing. So it seems only sensible that we want to get co-infected individuals into treatment for hepatitis C since we can cure hepatitis C now with great reliability. So that's one less comorbidity they have to live with. That's one less set of viral burden and inflammation that they have to grow into older age with. So I think treatment of hepatitis C is going to be incredibly important in terms of preventing some of these downstream problems for people with HIV. So talk a little bit more about the, the treatment of hepatitis C, um, because as you say, this is something that now uh, is something that we can treat. Um, is it, talk a little bit about that treatment and particularly about the cost and whether that is covered by insurance for a population who, quite frankly, may not always have the best insurance. So uh, the treatment of hepatitis C is now recommended and many insurers are covering hepatitis C treatment. It is quite expensive. People have estimated that the cost of achieving viral suppression is about $100,000 per individual if you had to pay out of pocket. Uh, the VA pays for it. Many major insurers pay for it. Uh, the federal government pays for, the, for it for the people who qualify. Uh, the Affordable Care Act individuals are covered. And in fact, interestingly, even though it is a very expensive thing to treat, I am hearing from my colleagues who are setting up clinics to do hepatitis C treatment that they actually, the reimbursements that are offered by insurance companies are actually fairly good. So it's not a money loser for healthcare systems, which means that the systems will hopefully be more likely to set up uh, good clinics to do the treatment. Uh, general internists are beginning to treat hepatitis C because the, the medications are much less toxic, much more easily tolerated. Uh, the requirements for treating individuals are much less difficult, and they're even expanding treatment to people who have substance use issues, which I think is also very exciting. So that's going to be a huge help in terms of reducing uh, the number of, of cancers that we uh, find in patients who have HIV, if we can treat co-infections with uh, hepatitis, if we can potentially prevent uh, some cancers either due to HPV or smoking or alcohol-related cancers. Let's talk a little bit about screening. One of the greatest things that I think we've done in cancer over the last several decades is really improve early detection. And it would seem to me that in a population at high risk, um, 
This is something that's important. Are the guidelines any different for HIV-infected individuals as for the rest of the population? And if not, should they be? Good question. Good um, question. Yeah. So let's first look at the uh, cancer types where there is there are firm guidelines. So there's colorectal cancer, um, and re- it's the same for colorectal cancer. Um, there's pap um, screening for cervical cancer. Um, that screening is somewhat, the recommendations are somewhat more intensive uh, for HIV-infected women, which has been very successful. Um, so the rate of, the incidence rate of cervical cancer in HIV-infected women is barely higher than it is in the general population now. So that's been very successful. Um, as you know, prostate cancer screening is controversial. It's not currently not recommended you know, by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, so let's skip that one. Um, and uh, breast cancer screening would be the same. Um, there's no special recommendation about breast cancer. But let me mention three other cancer types for which um, there's currently no recommendations but are important in this population. Anal cancer, liver cancer, which we've talked about already, and lung cancer, which let me amend that because there, there is now a recommendation yeah. Yeah. for the general population for lung cancer. So let me turn to that one first because um, there are issues with regard to HIV-infected uh, persons, which are that um, there are good reasons to suspect that you might have a, many more false positives uh, with the, its, its low-dose um, CT scan screening. Um, and false positives are, are bad. Um, and so uh, there needs to be more research in that area. Um, anal cancer screening uh, is probably a lot like cervical cancer because it's HPV, but uh, we still don't know, it still hasn't been proven that, um, that it, it is a benefit, and there are active trials right now trying to, to prove that. Dr. Robert Dubrow is Professor of Epidemiology and Chronic Diseases at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Amy Justice is Professor of Medicine and of Public Health and Section Chief of General Internal Medicine for the VA Connecticut Healthcare System. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.